0: Okay, let's get started. Hey, my name is Jack Skeels, and I've got some things that I want you to see. Welcome to the Art of Management. Podcast where I will eventually help you see and even understand and master the art of being an amazing manager. Me, I've been a researcher, professor, coach, I've got a weird journey, by the way, award winning entrepreneur, and over the last decade, I've had the privilege of coaching thousands of people just like you. This episode, The Lazy Manager. Let me start here, though, before I explain what that means. In episode 2.1, it's called the natural tax of managing. We talked about this idea that the more managing there is, and in fact, the more managers there are, the, it tends to suppress what we call the production function, which production is just what it sounds like, how much work gets done. In other words, more managing is, equals less productivity, and along with this idea was that managers and managing in fact are a cost to the organization. They have a purpose, but they actually are a cost as well. So rather than have this management function suppressing the productive function, what if we suppress the management function? Then does that release the productive function? We'll come back to that question in a minute. But actually, can you be a less costly manager? In other words, reduce your cost and impact on the negative impact on the production function just by being a different style of manager, by being, well, maybe a lot less of a manager, or even, back to the title of this episode, even a lazy manager. And how would you do that? How would that work? What's that look like? What would you need to change? Back in a minute with some answers. Come back. You know, I, I hope I didn't spark, man, a little bit of an existential crisis inside of you. Or maybe I do. But I mean, what would people do if you weren't actively managing them? And are you needed? And the like, it's a really interesting question. Um, but just be brave. And, and don't worry, you can always overmanage again. If once you get good at this, it's easy to do. So, well, let me dig into this. Um, this idea really is that if we're going to be lazy, we need to find some dimensions to be lazy in, right? But they all seem so counterintuitive. I was really amazed when I first discovered this stuff. I'll tell you more about that background later on. But when I really discovered this stuff, I thought, wow, you sort of have to turn off a lot of the things that actually make you feel like you're a good manager. So I'll, pull, I'll pose a couple of questions here for you. One of which so I'm, I'm going to do, which is better, A or B, right? So is it better to be an involved manager rather than a merely available manager? Is an involved manager better than a merely available manager? How about another one? Is a nice manager better than a serious or focused manager? In other words, are you you a better manager if you're nice versus are you a better manager if you're serious and focused? A third one is, what if, are you a better manager if you're a know-it-all manager, a manager with the answers, or maybe someone who's not so knowledgeable, maybe somewhat, somewhat ignorant kind of thing, right? Involved versus merely available, nice versus serious, know-it-all versus well, kind of ignorant. So let's ponder that a bit. I'm going to tell you a story. I love, I love telling the, the case study type stories and the like. And this is a fun one because I was actually flying back from working with a client and because uh, I travel so much or used to travel so much, at least um, I, I, I get up in first class a good amount of time and you meet you meet some interesting people in first class. It's not all that great flying first class But the people you meet are really interesting. And there's this guy sitting next to me. He saw my, I was working on a PowerPoint, I'm sure, or something like that. And he said, hey, you do Agile. Can I talk to you about Agile? I think I may need it. Well, it turns out, so I get get the details. This guy owns a small 15-person company They are what's called a Cedia company, C-E-D-I-A. It stands for Custom Electronics Design and Installation Association or something like that. What it means is that they go install these like weird electronics setups in people's houses and also offices and buildings and the like, but think sort of the... Uh, the, the James Bond push a button in the bedroom and the the bed rotates out from the wall. The TV, the movie screen drops down, the curtains close, the, the lights change intensity. Uh, it's probably a more fancy thing 20 years ago than it is now with all the technology and the like. But they would go do this. He was L.A. based also. They would install this technology in, in movie stars' homes. You know, Gwyneth Paltrow wants a... You know, a wine cellar to pop out of the kitchen floor—that kind of thing. Now he was being—he had become very successful at doing this, and he had a team of of fifteen installers, and you can think of them as sort of fifteen different MacGyvers, right? You know that they have to go figure out how to do things that seem impossible with all the all the wrong pieces and that kind of thing. But his problem was not actually them getting the work done, but getting them to the work. It turns out he said, you know, what's really hard now, and it was never hard before, was how do I schedule all these people to get the work done, you know, the production schedule for the week? I spent all day Sunday trying to figure out who should go where and how long everything's going to take. And and it's just getting worse because, you know, I do it and it never turns out right, and um, the the people were just, you know, everyone's upset and doesn't like the assignments and that kind of thing. I thought maybe we need to be more agile. So that's my question. How do I use agile in this situation? Well, I didn't tell him it wasn't agile what I was going to say, but you can guess from today's theme of the episode, he was probably managing too much. And essentially what I thought was, this is a problem that he shouldn't be trying to solve. The fact that he's trying to solve it is actually making everyone miserable. I I presumed this. It makes a lot of sense. So I suggested he actually get lazy. Get lazy and give the job to the team. So he only has one task on Sunday, I suggest. Take a a deck of uh, post-it notes or a deck of you know, whatever, index cards, and on each of those, write the job that needs to be done that week, right? Write whatever you need for a description of it, right? And then Monday morning, put them all out on, on the conference table in your conference room and invite everyone in and say, hey guys, figure it out. Figure it out and get it done. Let me know if you need anything. He was like, well, it, okay, fine. That's kind of weird. But five weeks later, I got an email from him titled Agile! And he said, the team loves it. Everything gets done. People are really happy. The quality of work and morale and everything has gone up. And he gets to watch football on Sundays again. In this way, he had become too over-involved in the work in doing things that, frankly, the teams could do just as well and even better. So think about this. What functions do you do as a manager? Do you cl- What functions do you claim as a manager? I'll take care of that. I'll do this. I'll do that. That the teams, the people, the non-manager people could actually do pretty well, maybe even better than you, just like with him. He couldn't out-schedule how well they could schedule themselves. Think about that. What functions are you doing that others could do much better? That's the first step into the world of lazy management. Back in a sec. You might have guessed it. Welcome back. You might have guessed that part of his problem was that he was thinking that he was the only one who could figure this out, that he was sort of the know-it-all. I know best how to arrange things and the like. And and we can live with that sort of illusion all the time. I heard of a piece of research where they said, in general, when you survey people in a group and ask everyone how much smarter they are than the average um, the average of those scores is 70%. So everyone in the group on average thinks that they are smarter than the average, which is actually impossible. But it's sort of a thing that we do. We tell ourselves that we're good. And if we've had that reinforced through promotion, then that gets kind of strange. I'll come back to that in a minute. I just wanted to tell you another little story about really how essentially I first, one of the ways I first learned this, in fact, was it, to speak of an Agile methodology or a pre-Agile methodology. I had been precocious as a computer scientist uh, starting at age 12, using computers at the university where my dad taught. And I really got into it. By the time I got out of college and ended up in a programming job on the West Coast at an aerospace company, you know, I knew more than a lot of people knew in that department you know who had been there for 10 or 15 years doing this for a long time part of that was the technology curve but also frankly I'd been working really hard and was a sharp guy now I made this mistake in my career which has turned out okay I guess but I wrote a status report my boss was a uh, my boss had a drinking problem and would not show up a lot of times, and so I would write the status report. And people realized they wrote a good status report, and they offered me a job as a project manager, as sort of a lead for the department. I didn't want to be a manager. I liked programming. It was really fun. But it paid 40% more, and I got to leave at about 4 o'clock every day. So I thought, okay, I will took the money. Uh, and I, was, I became legendary in that role as a manager. And I didn't even want to be legendary. I laughed about it. But I was legendary because I knew a lot and I hated doing the job. I always had an answer. I always knew what the right answer was. But I was so bored with the idea that I had to go tell everyone the right answer and tell them what to do. And I stumbled into this methodology called iterative enhanced project management. One of my good friends actually turned me on to it. This is 1982, 19 years before Agile happened. And it looks like this. IEPM says you make a simple plan for what to produce for the next two weeks. Get the team to agree. You let the team build it and then show it to your client, review its stakeholders, whatever. And then you make a new plan for the next two weeks. So what kind of managing is that? You just do that over and over. Set it and forget it, I used to call it. How did that team do? I tried it out with this one team. Um, This team actually had been working on this project for two years, and that's why it was given to me, because I was supposedly the hotshot guy, right? And this team got farther in six months than they had in the previous two years before we started doing this. People would ask me, how's the project going? I'd say two things. "I, I don't know. I'll ask the team, see what they say. Or, hey, wait till Friday. We'll show you what we got. I didn't know enough to, to actually avoid over-managing. I just didn't want to manage. I wasn't master, commander, or even facilitator. Maybe not even a facilitator, but I was really a reluctant manager. I avoided a trap accidentally. I avoided that know-it-all manager trap. And that's one of the key moves, is by knowing less, we actually become better managers. Back in a sec. Think of that. Welcome back. Think of that—the know-it-all trap. How does this happen? Well, I turn it back to you and say, how do we choose whom we promote? And a lot of what goes on today—we're going to talk. We're going to have a whole episode on this, by the way. But it's done. is basically what we call the meritocracy. This is where deep specialists—the people who are most knowledgeable in any given department are promoted into the hierarchy. In other words, the person who's best at doing the work gets promoted to a job where they oversee the work, but they don't actually do the work anymore, or they do less of the work. And this this model basically forms the basis of today's knowledge worker organization. They're structured in meritocracies because of the mistaken notion that they should be structured as hierarchies. Now, so we've got this deep specialist What we call specialist to leadership transition problem what got you the promotion those behaviors about proving that you were smarter than everyone else turns out to be a horrible way to manage and the research is actually quite crazy now some of these core concepts and this is what what fed me is that the famous psychologist and philosopher abraham maslow he know you may know him from hierarchy of needs and a few other really cool things he did he did some side work, just sort of a little a little journey off into industrial psychology. And he pointed this out. He said that people who are climbing or have climbed to the top of the pecking order, right, that those people have a characteristic which suppresses the greatness or the performance of all those whom they have passed. And he even went so far to suggest that maybe we shouldn't have them in the same room. <laughs> when people are trying to get work done, it was brilliant work and is derived from sort of first principles and a bunch of research on, on animals and dominance and animals and everything like that. Really, real cool. So when I first started playing with this stuff, this is 2009, 2010, one of my first real world experiments. I'm going to tell you about it in a different episode. I demonstrated that teams go faster with less managers and less managing that you could actually by removing managers from a situation, decreasing the count of managers. Like for example, in one case I removed 3 managers from a a situation that had 15 people and the team performed like 5 times better or something like that. It's pretty crazy. So let's let's go back to those to those three ideas I gave you about available versus involved and and being nice versus being serious, etc. Let me take you through those real quick. One is, and we already talked about this is moderate your know-it-allness, okay? Being merely good is way better than being a know-it-all. Why? It gives people a chance to take ownership and it gives them a chance to learn. If you have the answers, then they never have to learn. They, what they do learn is they just come to you for answers. So you you in a sense, cement your position as a manager because they never, no one else can rise up, but that's not what we want as a manager. We want to bring people up and have them get better, make them go through the struggle you went through by being less knowledgeable than you really are. And we'll talk more about a bunch of techniques around that later on different episode. Second is moderate your distance. Keep, keep distance from the team. Being available is far better than being involved. Teams underperform. Research shows, this is really cool stuff, research shows that the degree to which the manager is involved with the team is inversely proportional to team productivity and, and well-being. So stay, staying away, not too far away, but staying away is a beneficial behavior inside of a manager. And the third one has to do with your affect that is, being nice, having what they call positive affect, is way better than being serious or focused. In fact, one of the things that happens is serious focus managers end up with with what, what we call driven teams, teams that are driven like a, a like, a, you know, a bunch of horses being being driven to get a carriage across the Borgo Pass before sunset or something like that. But they have bad morale and bad performance. They actually do deliver, but they, the quality of the work they do is lower and, and their morale is worse. So think about this, is that it, essentially this manager we want is this sort of generalist manager who who says something like, hey, you guys are all awesome. Can I get you some bagels? I'll be in my office. Let me know if you need anything. That's actually a higher performance manager. And it's also what you might call a lazy manager, but it's a smart way to manage. Back in a sec. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking that was a lot, and I'm going to go over that list again because I think it's an important one for you to keep in mind. There are really three things. One is this sort of your, if you will, factual superiority, how much more you know than them and your, your demonstration of it. And it turns out if you can suppress the demonstration of your superior knowledge or find ways to redirect it, and we'll talk about this. I'm going to do this great episode. One of my favorite topics is on ignorance. Not ignorance, but ignore hyphen ants, A-N-C-E. Ignorance is actually a great technique for managers who know a lot to find a way to ignore the fact that they know it and bring it out in others. Okay, so one of the things we want to moderate are know it allness 2nd is we want to find a, a, a boundary, a balance, if you will, between being too involved and being completely uninvolved and being available and facilitative is the posture we want to take. But if you're watching from outside, it looks like you're kind of being lazy a bit or neglecting the team. And the last one is even more goofball, because, frankly, we look to managers for them their seriousness and intensity. And you can see this when managers get together sometimes, is that actually... Managers that have positive affect have much better teams than managers who don't. Managers who are serious and focused. And these are all easy traps to fall into when you go from being that deep specialist into a manager. So let's wrap up. A couple things for you to think about. Um, one is just that. Do you remember what it was like when you made that shift from specialist, deep specialist into manager? Or have you seen it in others? Okay. How, how, in fact... They were so, you or they were so great in that role, and then became so clumsy, if you will, inside this new managerial role. The second thing is, think of the things, this goes back to our Cedia example, what are the things that you you think you should do as a manager, but maybe you could actually ask everyone else to do, and maybe they might work better. Think of the things you put into your managerial agenda on a weekly basis, and What of those things can you actually hand off to other people? And don't be shy about it. Frankly, you can hand off having people attend meetings for you and stuff like that. People love it. You'll be surprised. And the last is, I sort of mentioned it a minute ago, pay attention to the way managers talk with each other, trying to sort of one-up each other on how managerial they're being, how actively managing, how dominant, how knowledgeable they are which all of those things actually result in lower productivity for the teams. It's really, really funny to watch if you get a chance to see it. If you see it in yourself, go ahead and laugh as well, because it's very common and you can learn past it. Okay, hopefully an enjoyable episode. One of my favorite topics, by the way. So let's close with this. If you're liking this, this art of management, the lazy manager, etc., please let a few people know about it. Maybe give us a shout out on social media, LinkedIn, or something like that. The more better managing, I know that's a horrible phrase, the better managing makes everyone happier. You can, of course, find helpful notes, information, some supporting links on our cleverly named website, theartof.management. That is of all one word, .management, on there. And also some supporting information and hopefully someday an ongoing conversation between you all and me on our showcase page on LinkedIn. And that's linkedin.com slash showcases slash the art of management. So until we meet again, try and dust off your laziness and and sit back and let the teams get the work done and be safe out there. Take care.